the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Great to be with you. An awesome, awesome day. Thank you for tuning in. And, of course, uh, if you don't already get what you need to know, the wink. We're in the wink right now. We're in the wink. The segment here is called The Wink, What You Need to Know. I'll tell you everything you need to know from today and yesterday since we last talked. If you want to catch up on it, you can go to ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com. And there you have two choices. You can listen to the, every segment of this radio show and last night, the night before, and tune in. Or you can sign up and also sign up for the daily email, The Wink, Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. Central Time. You get that 5 a.m. West Coast Time, 8 a.m. Uh, uh, East Coast Time. And you get that in your in- in- inbox. It explains what you need to know. The Daily Wink will kind of fill you in and get you started on your day nice and early. So you should do that and pay attention. So we'll cover it today. Listen. What an interesting night last night. I have not watched the entirety of a, um, of a, of a, even a night of the convention. Certainly I didn't watch any nights, full nights of the Democrat convention, mostly clips. And I don't think I, of course, in Cleveland four years ago, I was there. I was in Cleveland. So I saw very little of it on TV. And then this was a virtual thing, right? So it was kind of strange. It was kind of weird and uh, hard to figure out at first. But I got to say, Compared to the clips, again, I saw probably half an hour at a time of the four nights of the Democrats. And this time I watched almost the whole thing straight through last night. The Republicans, they really got the hang of it. You know, in case you didn't know, they're doing this. They're doing the live portions of this where people come out to the podium. Did you notice there are two podiums? They're on two stages in these big auditoriums right down, I think, on Constitution Avenue. If not, it's not Pennsylvania Avenue. I think it's Constitution Avenue. Uh, yeah, it's Constitution Avenue. And one of them is the Mellon Auditorium. I think both of them may be in the Mellon, but that stage. So they're coming out and, and, and obviously they were practiced. It was coached. It looked great. The flags and everything were crisp. Every, they had good angles. It's, it's weird, right, to give talks with no crowd. And you could tell, like, Kimberly Guilfoyle and even Donald Trump Jr., they were used to giving uh, talks in front of crowds. They kind of were talking that way, ramping up. But all in all, very effective, very effective use of, use of videos. Promises made, promises kept. You've heard me say that for months. That's a theme. I thought that little video there, maybe three minute video was very effective. Uh, I th- the whole thing was great. The, the couple of highlights just to tell you, and I, and I'll, I will go through this and what you need to know, because what you need to know right now is you heard last night 10 times out of six speakers. I didn't, I lost track. I didn't count along the way, but, but something like that. The phrase school choice and the discussion of the option of school choice. And, and, and the fact that you heard that so often and you heard it from people like Tim Scott, very powerful. You heard it from, uh, from, um, uh, the Democrat from Atlanta, from, uh, Georgia, the state legislator, um, uh, Jones, I think his name is. And you heard this school choice. It's clearly something that the president has made a part of his policy agenda for this coming term, the second term. And inevitably, it's a really good issue for politics for the campaign. 
Why? Because across the country, I'm on the East Coast. My kids are starting school after Labor Day. My friends all in Missouri and St. Louis all started school yesterday and, and uh, this week. Out in, in different parts of the country, out in the West Coast, they're starting school earlier. They're most online, some online, some hybrid, some in person, all this kind of stuff. They, never before have we started a school year where we've had more anxiety, anxiousness, like we have this year, it's just the highest level of, is this going to work out? Is it going to do well? What's going to happen? And when you do that writ large off of, off of millions of parents and kids all together, tens of millions, it's a big issue. And when somebody's saying, hey, one option would be to have more choices for you, it's a powerful, uh, that's a powerful um, uh, uh, policy uh, offering, you know, for somebody to offer out there. And here's how you can know it really is working at 11 p.m. East Coast time last night uh, after all the stuff was over. So it ends at 11. It ended at 11 p.m. East Coast time in Washington, D.C. is when the final speaker, I think it was Tim Scott, finished speaking, maybe four minutes before 11 o'clock. At 11 o'clock exactly, you had a tweet from Randy Weingarten, who is the, uh, she's the president of the American Federation of Teachers. Okay, so she tweets, and what does she tweet? She tweets the following. She says, uh, oh, let me get the exact text for you. She, she tweets the, her objection. Here it is. Tonight we heard over and over. Now, remember, this is the most prominent teachers union person. Most prominent. She's, she makes a half a million dollars a year as the head of the teachers union. She's on every TV show all the time. She's a huge Democrat. She's a supporter of Clinton and now, uh, Biden. Her, her Twitter feed has pictures of her and Biden and Harris and all. And she says that she writes this. Tonight we heard over and over about school choice. This is their way, uh, uh, put their way. This is their way pushing to defund public ed. We heard nothing tonight about investing in schools that 90% of the students attend. Nothing on reopening schools safely. Nothing on funding. It speaks volumes. Hashtag Trump chaos. Hashtag AFT votes. Here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to know. They're running scared. The, the unions know the president. The next tweet from, by the way, from is a guy named Corey DeAngelis at DeAngelis Corey on Twitter. A great guy on Twitter. Really active. He tweeted, why would giving families an exit option defund public schools? They're running scared. The American people know that they want, the, they should be able to demand more from their schools. They love their teachers. They want the best for their kids. And the teachers unions get in the way. This is a watershed on this issue. And the reason why you heard it a few times last night was because, so many times, because as a campaign issue, it's going to be very effective. And and the question will be in the new uh, Congress with the, the pre second term of the Trump presidency, will he what will they do? Will they pass it? But it's a big deal. And that's something that you should you should notice if you didn't notice it. Now watch it again tonight and you'll see uh, if you if, I've only seen a little bit of the uh, of the replays uh, of some of the things that I'm doing this show. But if you're watching it, uh, you, you'll see it more and more. And I think you'll see it all week long. So here's the uh, let me get another point. What you need to know. Did you notice that a NASA uh, excuse me, a NASA you know, the, the, the NASA space program researcher at Texas A&M arrested for all kinds of fraud and hiding things. Why? Well, he's a Chinese national. And it looks like he, the Chinese, and, and we've been talking about this for months, they have people in our country that are spying for them. We know this. And they're not spying about the, uh, they're not spying about the soapbox derby. And whether the soapbox derby cars are done really well this year, you know, whether the whether the uh, California soapbox derby, the championship, who's got the most, uh, uh, you know, a cutting edge design for their their car. 
No, they're putting their people at the best universities, in this case, Texas A&M, and working on NASA in, 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 te- uh, in Texas and, 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 and spying. That's what's happening. The Chinese decoupling couldn't be more important in terms of what's happening in this country. And it actually it should play out in this election in the fall, because, again, you know, the story about Hunter Biden getting a billion dollars from the Chinese, from the communist Chinese banks for his investment company, you know, at right after the Air Force Two goes in and out of China. But that's not even the most important. It's an indication of the sort of small C corruption. The bigger problem is that the, the, the Biden Obama wing of the Democrat Party, as well as the Republican Party, has been given into China, the communist regime for ages. It's a huge problem. So watch that. All right. One more. One more. What you need to know today. Wink. As you're studying the wink. What else? I got to underscore again from last night. It's almost 24 hours ago. Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker, when you have a, a, a person, when someone attacks you and says you're a racist and you say, well, how can I be a racist? I have all these friends and I have all these people. I have African-American friends. I got that. It's it's you can't win that fight. It's by definition an unwinnable fight. That's why they do it all the time. But when people say this president is racist and Herschel Walker says, I'm personally offended that you would think I would spend time with a racist for after 37 years of friendship. That's what Herschel Walker said. And it's powerful. The better thing, though, that made laugh out loud was he said, I was taking uh, uh, the Trump kids to Disneyland and uh, and uh, uh, Donald said he wanted to come with us. And there he was in his suit and tie in uh, It's a Small World After All. And I, I know our technical director, Noah, who loves Disneyland, is laughing out loud. I, I can't even picture Donald Trump going through It's a Small World uh, with all those singing and all. But, but my point here is Herschel Walker did he put that to rest? I mean, he kind of had to, didn't he? I mean, it's pretty much over. You, nobody in America that knows anything in the last 40 years, if they know anything, they know Herschel Walker is a great football player and a good guy, all around good guy. I mean, just one of those guys that everybody likes. I mean, just a decent, decent guy. That was, again, also really powerful. All right. the um, Here's the one question I'll leave you with. What you need to know, unbelievable performance, lots happening, good things. And, you know, Biden was stumbled. He didn't get a bounce out of his convention. But here's the numbers. I wonder, looks like a lot more people are watching the Republican convention. Are they are they watching because they already believe, you know, they're they're seeing their team or are there independents in there? What is it? Is this a measure of the intensity of the of the of the Trump uh, people, or does this mean that the majority, the silent majority, is bigger than these polls and the pollsters will tell you? I tend to think it's the the latter, but I think we won't find out until uh, until we get to uh, uh, November. But that's where we're at. All right. Well, it, it's more to watch. Good stuff. And don't forget, go to proamericareport.com to find out uh, all these wink, get all this wink, and get to sign up on the daily email. And we'll take a quick break and come back. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro America Report. Be right back. This is the Pro America Report on the Answer San Diego. Welcome back. Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. You know, one of the best things about the Pro-America Report is we've got great listeners and people that are following on these key issues we care about, pro-life, pro-family, pro-America first. They're all over the country. And, and as many of you know, people that listen live on The Answer San Diego, they get the show, but also people go to uh, ProAmericaReport.com and they follow there. And and one of the, our next guest is uh, named Nikki Schaefer. And Nikki Schaefer is uh, an activist. She and her husband, Bernie, started Heart of a Child Ministries in 2012. Uh, and it was... Uh, 
uh, it was focused on their own uh, daughter, Grace, who inspired them. And, and there's a story, if you go to heartofachildministries.org, uh, it's a wonderful story, a beautiful family, by the way, Nikki, that picture is great. Uh, but Nikki emailed me and said, hey, you know, in Nebraska, we've got a new law passed to help uh, stop abortion. So I said, let's get on the air and talk about it. We love to hear people, especially a lot of our listeners, Nikki, are in California, and California is a wasteland in terms of conservative uh, legislators in the in the leg- in the in the California state legislature. So it's good to catch up on these. So first of all, welcome, Nikki. How are you? I'm doing fabulous. Thank you so much for having me on today. I really appreciate the time and the opportunity. Well, it's great to have you on. So tell us what's going on in the state of Nebraska. There's a new, there's a law, LB 814. Walk us through what it is, uh, how, what's happening. Give us the background on this. Yes. Yeah, so um, there's a Senator Geist who wanted to take a look at dismemberment abortion. As we all know, there are different types of abortions that occur. And in the second trimester, typically after 13 weeks, we allow something in this country called dismemberment abortion, where the baby's life is ended by the arms and legs being pulled off. And this senator said, we need to end this barbaric um, procedure. We need to end this barbaric way of killing young children in the womb. And so she brought this forth. And um, it went through three rounds, and it just passed, and we are elated in the state of Nebraska. So we needed 34, 33 votes. We got 34. Um, we are absolutely thrilled. So the next step is signing that into law. And what excites us as well, um, Ed, you had us on previously where we talked about how our ministry um, goes into schools and communities and shows live ultrasounds. And we have speakers mm-hmm. that give testimonies. They give pro-life testimonies. And one of our speakers was um, speaking at Concordia University. She used to work in the abortion industry, Ed, and she was converted and her heart was changed because she was asked to assist in a second trimester dismemberment abortion. She saw that baby literally fighting for his life. He tried to pull his arms out of the surgeon's instrument, his legs, he balled up at the top of the uterus. And when she saw that, she was impacted forever because she saw that that was a human being, that human being had a desire to live and that human being was fighting for his life. At one of our presentations at Concordia University, she shared her story. There there was a senator in there listening, and then that senator asked her to testify for this bill. Hmm. And her testimony was a key testimony that moved this bill next step into law. And we hope that this becomes a precedent for other states. Yeah. So again, we're talking with Nikki Schaefer. The, the website is heartofachildministries.org. And, and she mentioned that ministry uh, that we did have you on before, Nikki, about uh, the use of the ultrasound and how powerful that is. Before we get to that, I want to mention for our listeners, it's interesting how our 50 states are different, right? Um, the Nebraska legislature, I, I was, in my head, I thought they meet every other year. That's not right. They meet every year, although in one year they meet 90 days, the other year 60 days. But it's the only unicameral. There's only one chamber in Nebraska. There's not... 
a House and Senate, there's just one body and only 49 senators. Um, so that's very small. And, and, and in, in a way, I think it sounds sane. Um, there's 49 people. But, you know, let me ask you, Nikki, on this point, um, you mentioned it passed almost to pass almost unanimously. And, and in that in that case, are there pro-life Democrats in Nebraska? It's like it won't, we have to have a safari. They're so hard to spot anymore. But is that true? You know, I I am not aware of um, all oh. of how, I'm not aware of exactly how all the Democrats voted. Um, I okay. I do know that we got the 34 votes that we needed. Um, I, I see. do okay. know that one of the Democrat senators who was um, for this for was for keeping dismemberment abortion stated how she saw how barbaric it was. So I find it very interesting that a senator can see how barbaric a procedure it is, but still vote to keep going in our country. Mm, Um, I would love to Um, sit down with her and find the thinking of that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, All right. Now, let me let me um, I'll go back to the bill before we finish. But I want to ask you this question about the ultrasounds, because one of the things about the live ultrasounds and you've used used them is they're so persuasive for for people that are younger. They're used to TikTok and Instagram and everything. You put something up on the screen and they look at it. They go, oh, okay. you're not going to tell me that's not a person. I can see that. Am I do those of us those of us that are you know, like my age, 50 years old, do, do they, do you, do we simplify that? Or is that really how big a change it's been? I mean, in other words, does the ultrasound work that well, like it seems to? Um, yes, we have absolutely seen um, children and teenagers change on the spot through seeing our live ultrasound presentations. I can name two different occasions on one. We had a young man approach us and he said, you know, I was choice before this, but that is a baby and that changes Mm. everything for me. And until you see in front of your face, in front of your eyes and ears and hear that heart beating and see those hands and feet moving and see that baby and see that baby stretch, you don't truly know the humanity of the preborn person. Mm. And when, and when that is put in front of a young person's face, you cannot deny the heartbeat, the movement, some of the same responses that we have outside of the womb, like, like hiccuping, right, yawning. These are human things. And when kids see that on the screen, they can't help but say that is a human person, undeniably. We had another instance where a mom was going to um, opt out her teen from our presentation but decided to send him at the last minute. She was going to opt him out because she was uh, pro-abortion herself, but she decided to send him. And he approached us afterwards and he said, I see now how clearly wrong abortion is and that that is a human person. And now I need to pray about how I'm going to talk to my mom about this. So we have ha- had some significant changes that have happened right in front of our faces with these presentations. Hmm. We're talking with Nikki Schaefer again, and the, and the website is heartofachildministries.org. Now, finish this off on this new bi- this bill that passed a few weeks ago to protect the baby and stop these types of abortion. Where is it? Is it? it you, I think you said the governor will sign it. H- has he signed it? Will, when will he sign it? What are the details on getting this across the finish line? Right. So we just, so the bill just passed last Friday. So right now we're just at that place of waiting for him to sign it. I don't know. I have not heard of a date yet um, as the marker, but that is the next step here. 
You know, and of course, okay. and we expect the Democrats might uh, uh, try to fight back in different ways, but um, we are going to continue to fight. Well, but the but the but to, to to the the point about the governor, he said he would sign it. He's a Republican, and he said he would yeah. sign it. I mean, nowadays you can't you can't trust Republicans uh, either in terms of every now and then they'll they'll like Kasich in Ohio said he's pro life and all, but this governor says he will sign that's it. Right. Huh? Governor, okay, that's great. All right, been a wonderful pro life. Yes, yes, yeah. Absolutely. And I, one more thing on this. When there's nothing like success to breed success, and I wonder if you've heard already. I did see some coverage of this, and there's a lot of chatter in the pro-life community. Is, have you have you heard from other states in terms of this bill and what happened, or or is that coming down the line? Oh, you said you hope it happens, but has there been much uh, attention from other places? I I have not heard of that yet, but we are expecting it to occur. Okay. And last question. You're watching these two political parties. You don't have to endorse a candidate for president, but you're watching these two political parties. You must have an opinion of how they talk about, well, the Democrats didn't even talk about abortion. I think they tried to hide from it. But do you, do you have any thoughts on um, how uh, what's going on and what you see? Well, I'm very excited about Abby Johnson. She's going to be talking at the um, Republican convention tonight. Obviously, she's a great speaker. She is somebody herself who was transformed by seeing a second trimester abortion. And we just need to continue to put the truth out there. It's a barbaric procedure. Um, all life is beautiful, right? All life, white, black, right. rich, poor, all life is beautiful. And we need to keep um, shouting that from the rooftops. And the Republican Party is the one that does that. Very good. Thank you, Nikki Schaefer. Keep us, I, I very appreciate you emailing me and keep us in the loop on this and other stuff. It's important work. Again, it's heartofachildministries.org. I've got to run, though. We'll take a quick break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. So you all know, the listeners, you know that I love getting, I love reading and I love getting books and book tips and all. And so, I don't know, maybe three or four or five weeks ago, I got a tip. Um, someone said, Sophia Institute Press, uh, and they recommended a book. And I will admit right now, I can't remember the name of the book because it's, it, I did buy it actually, and I, I read it and I, and I liked it, but I can't remember it because I also at the same time bought a book that's called Cow Catholic Art Save the Faith, The Triumph of Beauty and Truth in Counter-Reformation Art. It's a long title, but it's by Dr. Elizabeth Lev. And I bought it. It came, and it's so cool. If you, you know, if you... I, I, I came to liking art and, and, and art history later in my life, my 20s. I didn't do it in school and college or anything. And, but I did a lot then and didn't do it system, systematically. And so it's a really cool book. If you're Catholic, which I am, it's also really uh, interesting and informs what you're doing. So I said, well, let's see if I can get uh, Dr. Elizabeth Lev on the show. And here she is. So welcome to the program, Dr. Lev. How are you? I am great. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Well, you're, you're nice to come on, and I know you're in Italy, so it's a time difference, and so it's even more of a challenge. So thank you for doing it. Before we get into the book a little more specifically, I want to ask you about what my Marine Corps brother, who's now a firefighter, said to me, which is after every – he said after a pandemic – you know, after this big challenge to our whole culture, which we're having, which has happened in history a couple times, the, the Spanish flu, maybe, and also Milan, the, the other plagues, there's an opportunity for 
you know, uh, big, my brother was saying he's kind of, he's supposed to be a meathead, but he's smart because he's, you know, he's just thoughtful. So he said, Hey, um, what's going to happen on the way out of this in terms of what we look towards in terms of art, in terms of, of how people get along, you know, and I wonder what you think of that. You know, we're in this lockdown and Italy has been too, but coming out of it, there'll be a time where we're coming out of it. Is it a renaissance? Is it a, is it a dark age? Do you have any thoughts in terms of art? I think, uh, well, uh, if, you, if you go back over pandemics, you see their varied responses. So, for example, the famous mm-hmm. plague of Milan that you were referring to in the 1560s brought forth actually a really remarkable flowering of art. However, um, in 1918, in the Spanish flu, you see much more of an abstracted art. So I think it's not so much of are we looking for some great art or some great direction to, to go in. I think what we see in front of us is a crossroads of opportunities, because what has happened during a period of lockdown where we've been afraid for our health, afraid for our economies, separated from friends and family, in a situation of utter uncertainty, we are forced to ask ourselves very big questions. And some people respond by looking for really big answers like faith. But I remind you, after the famous, famous plague, the one that started them all in 1348, Boccaccio wrote to the Cameron about a group of people who got themselves off to safety and then thought about amusing themselves. So we are not out of the woods spiritually as it were, we are now faced with greater clarity because we've all been forced to ask, what's important to us? Is it our freedom? Is it love? Is it health? Is it security? We've all been forced to ask this question. And now, at least being true to ourselves, because now we know who we are before a true disaster, we have to go forward in that question. So it's going to be up to us to see what we make of this extraordinary situation, which kind of reset the books, as it were. Yeah, we're talking with uh, Dr. Elizabeth Lev, and if you look, uh, she's got a TED Talk out there. She's got books. The book I've been talking to her about, which I read, which I'm interested in talking about now, is called How Catholic Art Saved the Faith. It came out, I guess, uh, almost two years ago, available. It's a Sophie Institute book, available wherever you buy books. But, but you know, the Counter-Reformation, this is about art after the Reformation, which would have been a dramatic moment in history, right? Although it didn't happen in like a weekend, you know, the, the Reformation. It was a period of time, but a lot of things are happening. The printing press is happening. Happening, you know, this is things are dramatically happening. But, the, but the, my perception as a non-historian layman is okay. There was a sense that the church needed to reform. Then the Reformation went too far, and here comes the Counter Reformation, and art kicked in. Is is and, and you cover in your book all these moments and all this kind of uh, way that art became a, a teaching tool for unifying people. But was the um, was the Reformation at the time that dramatic for the faithful? In other words, did it feel like they were coming out of a Reformation period where it was not a pandemic, but it was a break from the past? And therefore, the can we learn from the Counter-Reformation in terms of coming out of this period? You see what I mean? I do. I think, as a matter of fact, to keep the metaphor, it was a spiritual pandemic. It really was a colossal event. Started with, you know, 95 theses nailed up on the, on the Cathedral of Wittenberg by Martin Luther, and that those hammer strokes were felt all around the Western world. And the fact of the matter is, it called into question as more people drew, joined Martin Luther's Martin Luther's band, as it were, more and more of them began to question more and more aspects of a faith. That 
that had been more or less handed down whole for over a millennium. And so as people began to doubt sacraments, what is the role of saints, they asked themselves. Why? Who died and made you Pope, they asked that guy in Rome. <laughs> and so right, all of a right. sudden, the Church finds itself, and here's the, I'd say one of the most important parts, is that they can propagate all of these questions and sometimes their own answers. The Protestants have mastered the printing press. They have mastered the most modern form of communication. It's like being the best at Twitter, the best at Facebook, the best at Snapchat, <laughs> the best at Instagram. So all of you, you are running the game. And the Catholic Church right. is never going to be good at Instagram because to answer a question about theology, it's not a soundbite. And so the Church right. finds itself in this rather wretched position of discovering, uh-oh, it turns out that people don't know the answers to these questions, and that's why they turn to art. And that that's what I wonder about, because one of the things that's happening in our culture, and I, I hate to stay up in our culture for a second, but I, I, I can't resist, is people don't even have the time. They don't have the time. I, it's, it's too easy to say attention span. I, I, that, that's easy. At the time of the Reformation, it would have been not as many people were readers or they weren't as good writers. You know, there's all sorts of reasons. But in this current moment, it, it, how do we get, and, and in your book, again, uh, How Catholic Art Saved the Faith, I like the, you know, the late Phyllis Schlafly, for whom I worked, used to write all these books and write about things. And then at the end, she would say, here's what we do about it. And in your book, there's some tips on how you put at the center of your family instead of uh, necessarily necessarily, you know, Prince of Monet, put Prince, uh, 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 Prince, I'm saying P-R-I-T-N-S, certainly not Prince, the, the singer, but, uh, and, and, you know, put images of, 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 of your faith and all other concrete examples. But in a, in a culture where people are not particularly stopping to, uh, you know, smell the Caravaggio, what, how do we, how do we change that dynamic? It, 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 what do we do? Well, I think, first of all, we need to possess our own story. I mean, one of the things that's interesting, if we're talking about the impact of the printing press, it does imply that people actually can read, right? If you're producing 50 million right. documents, there must be somebody right. out there reading them. So it's not, I mean, illiteracy is less of a problem, I think, insofar as a spiritual illiteracy. The problem is, we have plenty of free time. People back at the time of Martin Luther had far less free time. They had to actually run around and scrabble for a living. We have so much free <laughs> right. time that we can't invent enough video games to keep ourselves, keep ourselves busy. And so the fact of the matter is that when we when we don't want to dedicate the time to things that challenge us like the faith. So the fact of the matter is that in the in the in the in the in the, in the Counter Reformation period the church used an, it's an entertainment but also a devotional activity looking at pictures. And they charged mm -hmm. those pictures with meaning. So in our world Catholics need to employ their unique Catholic imagination in the art form that attracts everybody to this day in this in this particular period. The, here's what I want to ask you in the book, and we're talking again with uh, Elizabeth Lev, Lev, Dr. Lev. And the book is called "How Catholic Art Saved the Faith." Here's one that I really think is important, and you tell me because I've been kind of taken by this for my with my own children, people young people especially, but all of us, like to look up to heroes, right? In America, it was the Horatio Alger story that up by your bootstraps, here came, you know, these great people that were self-made, and it became this thing like, I can be like them. And and one of the chapters, chapter 13 of the book, is about saints. And, and I think that that's an interesting one, because there are so many amazing depictions in, in after the Reformation and Counter-Reformation, both in, in painting as well as in sculpture of 
of saints. And there's something about this moment where that's the way, even you mentioned uh, Decameron earlier, uh, Boccaccio, it, it became all about these people. They were laughing at the, the clergy and the princes and all. Something about this, this, this saints, I think, could be a real key for uh, kind of uh, getting people to look again. What do you think of that? I think this is one of the things I mean when I talk about we have to own the beauty of our own story. In the well-worn quotation from Ratzinger pre-Benedict XVI, that the greatest, of, the greatest apology for our faith is the beauty of our art and the lives of our saints, the lives of our saints are amazing. And they come from every single walk of life. And I look around and I see people writing biographies of anybody and anything that happens in the world. <laughs> yeah. I tripped right. over Donald Trump right. once. Let me write a book about it. You know, people write, right. they, people pick up books and want to hear individual stories of people. But what about people who really did exceptional things with their lives? Those stories are beautiful by their own nature. So here's where my incredible pet peeve uh, with the Catholic Church comes in. Every time we have these magnificent canonization ceremonies, and I live 10 minutes from St. Peter's on foot, and I love getting ready for the canonization. The chairs go out, the flowers come in, and people are pouring in, and you hear all right. these different languages because we have saints from all over the world, and you're getting so pumped up. And then the day comes, and you're standing in the square, and they unveil five really hideous photographs. And you're like, really? <laughs> That's funny. That's great. Anybody, uh, anybody ever hear of Photoshop, folks? I mean, why yeah, do we have right. to take a bunch of a, a religious sister who looks crabby, you know, a hook-nosed right. bishop? You look at these people, and if you were making a movie, you would cast them in in in, in, in the most peculiar parts. Why can't we do what Raphael and Caravaggio and Anibale Caracci and Durer did, and give the saints the setting which is worthy of their dignity and their extraordinary life. Right. So these are ways that we can also tell the story. I mean, there's no need to tell their story in this way of, well, and then I suppose maybe this miracle happened. Why are we always shying away from the extraordinary mm -hmm. things that, that saints do? I mean, you hear about the crazy things that people claim that, 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 that other people do. Why can't right. we own these stories hold them up, embellish them in writing, embellish them in songs. I'm really sick of music that we hear. It's always the same two things. Why can't we hook up? Or did we hook up? I'm sick of hooking. Why don't we write stories about <laughs> great people who do cool things? Why don't we make movies or television shows about great people who do cool things? Why don't we show? We've got the best game in town where everybody is tearing down everybody in this particular period. Here we have a whole bunch right. of people who have been time-tested at some of them for 1,700 years or 2,000 years, and they've still held up. Why don't we play to our strengths? Yeah. Well, Dr. Elizabeth, it sounds like your next book, Dr. Elizabeth Lev, but hold on. I got to get one question and quick one. You tripped over Donald Trump or are you just making that up? Because if that, we need that story. If you ever, did you ever meet Donald no, Trump? Let's get it. Let's get it. I am not, I am you, not you, the person who tripped over. I was using, I was using, uh, uh, oh, okay, an example. Okay. It's the kind of thing that people be, feel is worthy of writing a biography over. I was, I, I just was going to call the New York Post. Somebody at the New York Post would want this one. This is a Dr. Elizabeth Lev, an encounter. We, I could write the headlines. All right. I've got to run. Thank you very much. We'll put the book up on social media, How Catholic Arts Saved the Faith. Dr. Elizabeth Lev, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks a bunch. All right. We'll take a quick break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. 
This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily broadcast from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. And we're upholding the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly, grassroots activist, author of 27 books, and articulate voice for traditional values for more than 70 years. And now, from the archives of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, here is Phyllis Schlafly. Most school and college history courses don't teach much about our War of 1812. So let me tell you that today is the 197th anniversary of the day God saved America in that war. Remember, Britain was then the world's superpower, and the United States was just a little nation trying to get on our feet. The British warships sailed into Chesapeake Bay on August 19, 1814, and marched toward Washington, D.C. On August 24, the two armies met along the banks of the Potomac River. The temperature was 100 degrees. Britain had the world's best-trained soldiers, and they quickly routed the Americans, who were just a bunch of untrained volunteers. The British admiral ate dinner in the White House and then gave the order to set fire to the city. Within hours, the White House, the U.S. Capitol, and many other public buildings, the dockyard, and several large storehouses filled with cannons, small arms, and other weapons were burning. On the morning of August 25th, the British soldiers continued to set fires, determined to destroy the city. On the afternoon of August 25th, the heart of Washington was hit with a devastating tornado that collapsed buildings and lifted them off the ground, blew off roofs, uprooted trees, destroyed the bridge across the Potomac, threw the British cannon into the air, and killed British soldiers. That was followed by a soaking rain lasting two hours that put out most of the fires in the city. The British soldiers were forced to withdraw and found that their warships were badly damaged. Washington, D.C. is not usually a target of tornadoes. Only seven tornadoes have hit Washington since 1814, and they didn't do much damage. The Americans at the time believed that America was saved from having to surrender to the British on August 25, 1814, by an amazing act of divine intervention. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Whether it's the vision of our founding fathers, the courage of our veterans, the moral compass of Christopher Columbus, or the fortitude of presidents like Lincoln and Reagan, the truth of history should not be undercut by liberal ideology. At Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, we honor history even as we look to the future. Join us at phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Welcome back. Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. Remember, I told you yesterday we'll start doing a regular segment called Promises Made, Promises Kept. And when I said that to you um, yesterday, that I was um, didn't know that there would be, uh, during the program, uh, so many references to promises made, promises kept at the Republican convention. I kind of thought so. The campaign has talked about that phrasing, uh, but it was pretty good. But here's a promise made and promise kept. And I haven't seen the speech yet. I don't even know if it happened already tonight. Uh, but um, uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo will speak from Israel. Um, he's over there working on this uh, Arab uh, uh, peace deal. And uh, so I'm not sure uh, when that runs or whatever. But here's my point on this. You want to talk about a promise made, promise kept. Have you seen the president talk about the decision to move the embassy 
in Israel uh, to Jerusalem, which has been a promise that every president has made for about 30 years. I think George H.W. Bush made that promise. Uh, Bill Clinton made the promise. W. Bush made the promise. Obama made the promise. Everybody promised. And but here's the interesting thing about this. The president, President Trump describes what happened when he was in office. So he won for a presidency. He told his team, move the embassy. That's what the Israelis say. This is our capital. We can, you can have a consul in other places. This is our capital, which is what you usually do. You don't usually tell the, the nation in which you have an ambassador, ambassador where you think the embassy should be. They tell you where the capital is, and that's what you, where you put it. I mean, usually, I, I guess I don't know that history, but it seems intuitively so. But, um, President Trump said, What has happened in the past, he came to learn, was if you go to move the embassy, all the leaders in the world call you and they say, don't do it. And and the way he described it is partly because they don't want to have to be pressured themselves, some of them, but they all say, oh, don't do it. It'll be terrible. It's going to be lead to lots of trouble. It'll lead to lots of people talking. It'll be a problem. Don't do it. And his point when he tells these stories, he's, I've seen him tell it a couple different times in, in slightly different ways, is he made the promise on the campaign show he's going to do it. So the most recent time he talked about it, he said he just did it and he announced it and they went and did it. And he said, then all the leaders in the world called him and and he looked with a big smile and he said, it's always easier to do something. And then when they try to tell you how how bad it's going to be and you've already done it, you, you know, you can't undo it or you're not likely to undo it. And his point is that that works better than waiting and asking permission. And the reality is on a lot of stuff, including, by the way, this president. There's things that you go and run for office on and say are going to happen. And for lots of reasons, they don't happen. They don't happen on the timeline you expect. They don't happen in the way you want. Sometimes they don't happen at all. An example, by the way, is promises made, promises kept. You say President Trump said he'd build the wall and he's only built 350 miles or 400 miles. It's not, you know, not all the wall. Now, there's lots of reasons for that. And I would I would submit to you that the swamp and other forces try to slow you down from doing the things that you promise and you should do. Maybe sometimes that's a good thing. I don't think so. But but um, in this case, the pressure to not do uh, move the embassy could have been a big deal. Right. It could have been if he let it, he could have been persuaded and not done it and said, well, for security reasons, we're not going to do it. But the fact is, we're America. If we want to move our embassy to the to Jerusalem, we can figure out how to do it. And it's Israel. They can figure out how to help us do it, make it safe. And when you do that, keep your promise on the stuff that's supposed to be difficult. The world notices. The world notices. Makes a huge difference. Changes the way people perceive us. That's a promise made and promise kept. That's the dynamic. That's the, uh, the, the the dynamic that takes place. All right, as always, thank you to Noah, our technical director, for keeping us online, Joanna for booking the show, and you for listening. Check ProAmericaReport.com out, and we'll be back tomorrow night. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Talk to you tomorrow.